The children may now be dismissed for Children's Church. And as they go, I'll invite you to find the Gospel of Mark in your Bibles. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right after Matthew, right before Luke. As you're finding the book of Mark, chapter 1, I'm going to let you in on a little secret scheme of mine. You may remember we spent two years and three months studying the book of Romans, basically from Romans 1-1 all the way through chapter 16. We took a few breaks for holidays and special occasions, but we pretty much plowed straight through Romans, which I loved. Um, We're not taking a poll right now on how you felt about that process, but... Um, I am in sort of a covert manner preaching through the entire book of Mark. And you may remember that we began Mark last Christmas in preparation for Advent. We started Mark at the beginning and just took a passage each week throughout Advent. And then we went on to other things. And um, my plan is periodically to return to Mark until we have worked our way entirely through Mark from start to finish. And if you missed any of those sermons uh, from Mark chapter 1, they're all on the website There's a typed recap and the audio is there, uh, so you can go and get caught up. But this Easter season, we're going to get back into Mark, starting at Mark chapter 1, verse 16. And we're just going to work our way through this biography of Jesus throughout the whole Easter season and and on beyond throughout the rest of spring. And just see how far we get, and then we'll move on and study some other things. And uh, that's the way I'm planning on going about it. The Lord could change my plans Anytime he wants to. So that's what I'm thinking right now, but you never know. He might change my plans midstream in this sermon. I might start preaching through something else. Romans again, maybe. So let me orient you to this book before we pray and start to study it. Uh, It's called The Gospel According to Mark. That's a title that the translators gave to it. It didn't come to us with the title written there. But the scholars are pretty certain that the man who wrote it was Mark as in John Mark, whom you may have seen throughout other scriptures in the book of Acts and some of the other letters and some of the other gospels. This man, Mark, who we believe wrote this biography of Jesus, was um, an associate or an assistant to Paul and Barnabas on all of Paul's missionary journeys, or not all of them, but some of them. So we see him sort of tagging along sometimes and sometimes being left behind, which is another story. Uh, it seems that this man, Mark, may have been a protege of Peter because we see in Peter's, one of his letters, he calls him his son. And we know that Mark wasn't his biological son, so he must mean his spiritual son. So he was not one of the original 12, but he was very close to the, to the first movers and shakers of the kingdom of Christianity. That's who we believe wrote it. Uh, we believe he wrote it about 30 years after Jesus died. And it's an interesting book. It's different from the other four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. And then John is way different from all of them because he takes a more uh, a spiritual look at Jesus's life and ministry. Whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke are more of a straightforward biographical sketch of mainly his three years of public ministry. But Mark is unique because it's almost like reading a, a journalist or a reporter's take. It's very snappy, short. He uses the word immediately a lot. It's quick. He doesn't spend a lot of time on Jesus' lengthy teachings. He mainly spends his time saying, he went here and he did this. Then he went here and he, w- he did that. He went here and here's how they responded. It, it's just very quick, informational. Um, 
So it's, it's got a different flavor from maybe Matthew, which tends to be the gospel that most of us spend the most time in, either Matthew or John. So it's going to be an interesting study for us. So he, Mark wrote this book, as, as best we can tell, to Christians as the church was established who were under persecution. But he wrote it to the church, which means by extension, he wrote it to us. And God, through the Holy Spirit, inspired it for us, the church, to read and to be strengthened and to especially to endure as we grow in our faith in Jesus Christ. So this book is for you. The book of Mark was written for you. Today we're going to see when Jesus called his very first disciples in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. Before we read it, though, let's pray together. Would you bow with me? As your head is bowed and before I begin to pray, take just a moment to pray. Take just a moment to remind yourself that you are encountering here God's words. Take just a moment to open yourself up, to ask God to help you be open to his voice. And not just your ears or your mind, but your heart. Father, that, that is our prayer. We need you now so that this will not just be a man passing along information to other people, but that this could be a supernatural transaction wherein you speak to us and where we hear your voice. And that word that created everything and that word that goes forth and accomplishes its purposes, that it would do that, that it would accomplish all of your manifold purposes in each of our hearts, in each of our lives. We come to you now as clay to be molded. And Lord, I just publicly confess that I am weak and I am not wise, I am not knowledgeable. All I have is your word and I need you to help me serve your people well. Make these few minutes together. Make them powerful. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Now, I will invite you, let's return to the practice in which we stand to honor the reading of God's word. Would you stand with me? And we're going to read Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 16. And you can follow along in your Bible or just listen, as my translation may not be the same as yours. This is the ESV, the English Standard Version. God's word says, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. We're so grateful that we can study God's word together. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. So the scene begins with Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee. I did a little bit of research on the Sea of Galilee just to see how big it was so I could try to picture it. Yeah, it's a big sea. It was uh, about 65 square miles. To give you some perspective, that's about 15 square miles larger than Lake Norman. Okay, so it's a, it's a pretty big body of water. 
It says just after Jesus begins his public ministry, in the rest of chapter 1, John the Baptist had come and prepared the way, saying, he's coming. The Messiah is coming. Then Jesus arrived, and he was baptized, and he uh, was swept out into the, the wilderness and tempted by the enemy. And then he comes back, and he proclaims in verse 15, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So he's just come and he's just started to proclaim the message of the kingdom coming. And here we see one of his first orders of business as he's now public at work on his mission to bring the kingdom of God to people. Okay, and what we're going to see, here's the big idea in case you're just so sluggish from breakfast that you have to just phase out and stare off into space. You'll get the big idea if you hear this point. This is sort of the title, the, the big idea. Jesus calls ordinary people to follow him. Jesus calls ordinary people to follow him. This is one of the first orders of business once he starts his public ministry. Now, note how he initiates everything here. Jesus calls. Jesus is the one who does the calling. Look back into the passage and see who's the initiator of everything that takes place. Jesus is the one passing alongside the Sea of Galilee. He's the one that sees Simon and Andrew. Simon and Andrew are busy casting their nets into the sea. The nets they were casting would have been these big nets that had a circular outer ring that would have been weighed down so they could cast them out and they would start to sink and then they could draw them in and get as many fish as they could. So they're busy working and Jesus sees them. So he's the one that spots Simon and Andrew He's the one that says to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. He's the one that goes on a little further and spots John and his brother, James, sons of Zebedee in their boat. They're mending a net that's broken. So they're not paying attention. They're just working. And Jesus spots them and he calls out to them too, probably saying something very similar to what he said to Simon and Andrew, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Now, I need to give you guys a little hermeneutics lesson. Hermeneutics is the art and science of biblical interpretation. You're welcome for that little tidbit that is of no use to you, really, but you can whip it out sometime at a party. You guys go to a lot of hermeneutic parties? Maybe not. I I need to talk to you about how we understand books of the Bible like this. This is like a biography. It's telling the story of Jesus. This is not a manual. This is not a recipe book. This is not one of the letters in the Bible in which you have an apostle outlining what the Christian life should look like. This isn't a poetry book. It's not open to whatever interpretations we want to read into it. This is a a narrative. This is what happened. It's just history. So we can't read this and say, Well, this is how Jesus did it here. So this is in exact detail how he's always going to do it. Whenever Jesus calls a disciple, it's going to be a fisherman. He's going to do it while they're working with a net. So if they're using a cane pole, he's not going to call them because they're not using a net. He's going to always do it at the Sea of Galilee. He's going to always do it while he's walking on the Sea of Galilee. So if you see him on a jet ski, he's not calling disciples right now because he's not walking. Do Do you see what I mean? You, you can't go from a gospel passage and read into it that this is how it always happens. 
Okay, this is just what did happen. So what you can do is see generally how Jesus has worked throughout history. You can see how Jesus began his ministry. And from there, you get to know him a little better, and you do get to know how he generally works a little bit. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, good. Because I've heard people, and I've done the same in my own study, read things out of texts like this and think, well, this is how it goes all the time. This is just history that we're studying this morning. So what we need to do then to figure out why this is in here and what the significance of it is, is jump out of there into other scriptures. Okay, so my first point is that Jesus calls, meaning that he's the one that does the calling. And we see that that's how it happened here. But I am confident that I can say that's always how it happens. Not just because I see it here, but because you see it all through the rest of the New Testament. If you just start scanning through the pages, uh, start in Romans and, and just scan through all the letters and see how many times these people inspired by the Holy Spirit say, God called you. Jesus called you. He's the one that did the calling. Uh, here's how you should respond to your calling, which you've already received, that God gave. So all through Scripture, we see that God's the one that initiates, through Jesus Christ, the calling to himself of disciples. He's the one that does it. He is the initiator. I want to read to you just a couple of those passages to prove that I'm not making this up. I want to read to you Second Timothy one verse nine because this has huge implications the fact that Jesus is the initiator when disciples are called and that's what we're all about you know we want to love God and people by making disciples but we have to humbly realize that we don't have the power to make a disciple I can't make you start to follow Jesus Jesus has to flip a switch in your heart through his call. Now, this has a lot of implications for you. Uh, Maybe you are a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and you need to remember that you didn't do that. Jesus did that. Jesus initiated that. First, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 1.9. Paul is writing to Timothy, a young pastor, and he he refers to God in verse 9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So if you have been called to be a follower of Jesus Christ, it's not because of your works, but because of God's own purpose and grace, which he gave in Christ Jesus before the ages even began. Before you were even born, he was at work ensuring that you would be a disciple. Now, I'm not going to go all the way back into the discussion of God's sovereignty and free will right now, but just be humbled by that for a minute. That means that those people who are just completely drenched and drowning in sin, who have never heard and responded to the call of Jesus Christ, who are completely uh, consumed with addictions and um, the consequences of their own foolish and sinful mistakes— you know, those people are so much worse. That's uh, I mean, that's all of us. The only thing that makes a difference is when Jesus calls out, hey, follow me. Okay? It's the only difference. And another thing that this does for us, it not only humbles Christians, but it gives us great hope for those that we're worried about. Do you have that person that you're worried about 
that you really want to see come to Christ, that you see them destroying their lives in a, a million different ways. You see them walking in the darkness and they, they have no idea that they're missing everything. And you can't, they're so far from Christ that you can't imagine them ever, you can't even picture them being a Christian. You can't picture them lifting their voice, singing praises to God. You can't picture them on their knees praying and confessing their sin. You, you can't picture them being generous with their, their finances because of what Jesus has done. Even the, the least likely person has hope because it's not based on their works that they can be saved. It's based on Jesus Christ's call. And he can call anybody. Remember how he called Paul? You know, he just persecuted some Christians in one town. He's on his way to persecute some more Christians in another town. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, hey, Paul, follow me. That's a paraphrase, but you know what I mean. We can never be proud of our salvation, and we can never be hopeless about somebody else's salvation. Because it's Jesus' call. Now, how does this call work? I need to visit that real briefly before we go on. You know, Jesus is not going to come walking through your work site. You know, you're, as you're getting out of your car in the parking deck to go to work or wherever you go, Jesus is not going to come walking along there like he did at the Sea of Galilee and verbally say, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Here's how it works today from Romans 10. I'll start at verse 13. Romans 10, 13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, now here we see that there's a call that people do to be saved. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Listen to everything else he says. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How is anybody going to ever call on Jesus if they don't believe in Jesus, if they don't trust him? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So what he's saying is for anyone to hear the call, they have to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ through Christians. You know, when we say that the church is the body of Christ, that's more than just a nice image. We are the body of Christ walking along the Sea of Galilee now. We are the body of Christ walking through your workplace now. It's through us, the church, the Christians, that Jesus calls out to people as they're mending their nets or casting their nets or clocking in or running their power drill or whatever it is. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So he still does it today and he does it through us. And he is the initiator. So Jesus calls. Who does he call? Jesus calls ordinary people. Look back at Mark chapter 1 and verse 16. He sees Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, a couple of brothers, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And then a little bit further on, he, he's still walking and he sees James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. There's a couple of brothers. They have a dad just like you have a dad who were in their boat mending the nets. You know, they're just working. Sounds like probably a frustrating day at work. Nets have ripped up, maybe got snagged on something. Have you ever had a frustrating, frustrating day at work? Regular people. And some people think that what's remarkable about these guys is how blue-collar they are. 
But I don't think it's that. In fact, we see that um, James and John, they had hired servants helping them. So they were pretty successful. I don't think what's remarkable about these guys is that they were blue-collar people. What's remarkable about them is how unremarkable they are. These are just regular guys. Fishing industry was the industry of Galilee. I read in one place, one of the ancient historians said that at any given day, you could see 300 plus fishing vessels out there in the Sea of Galilee. They were just one of many in a swarm of people all just working, going about their days. Ordinary folks. Very ordinary. So picture yourself and your workplace and the people that you you know. If you're not in the workforce right now, for whatever reason, picture your neighborhood Picture your family members. You know, all these regular Joes, these are the ones. These are the people. Abraham Lincoln said, God must really love ordinary people because he made so many of them. And we see in Jesus' very first, his first hire, his first recruitment, that, that must be, there must be truth to that. And I'll find that really comforting. And you see it later, you see it all through, you see it in Acts when the apostles are um, preaching the gospel and the church is just exploding. And people are coming to Christ, it's unbelievable, it's unstoppable. And the religious authorities arrest the apostles. And they're, what's striking when, once they arrest them is how they're just normal guys. They're just uneducated, normal guys. It was not the religious elite that God was using, just regular people. When I first became your pastor, uh, it was very intimidating to me, still is, um, but I just felt inadequate for every part of the task, um, inadequate for the uh, preaching, teaching, counseling side of it, inadequate especially for the leadership, organizational side of it, inadequate for the you know, unexpected conversations that you run into as the pastor, inadequate in every way. Um, and I think I've shared this with you before. But there was a period of time where every two weeks, I just thought, I've got to do something different. I am not the man for this. I'm just not the guy. I can't. Maybe I was the guy for a little bit while they figured out who was the guy. I just did not feel like I could do it. And um, my wife, who is very wise, put a verse of scripture on my mirror in the bathroom. And it was 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. And it says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's a really powerful passage, especially if you feel inadequate for whatever God's calling you to do, because your inadequacy is the whole point. He he doesn't want you feeling adequate. He wants you to remember you're, you're not the remarkable one in this relationship. He is. You're not the extraordinary one. He is. 
And so he calls things that the world would deem you know, not wise, not powerful or noble of birth. Notice here he says, not many of you were these things. Sometimes he calls powerful, seemingly wise, noble, noble birth people. But the majority of us are just going to be regular folks. And that's how he wants it. He wants things that seem foolish, that seem weak, that seem low, maybe even that seem despised, which we will seem more and more despised as culture continues along. Even things that are not to bring all the world's lofty wisdom and power to nothing. He flips the whole standard on its head. Now, this is really comforting for me that I don't have to be awesome. And you don't have to be awesome. God doesn't call awesome people to follow Jesus. This isn't an audition-based religion. And in a American Idol generation where it's all about auditions, it's all about who can stand out, it's all about differentiating yourself, it's all about being unique and marketing yourself. It's very comforting and restful to realize you can just relax. Just come as you are. He calls you as you are, where you are. He comes to your workplace where you're mending your nets and calls you. I find that very comforting. He calls, Jesus calls ordinary people to follow. That's my last point for you. He calls ordinary people to follow him. Note what he calls them to do back in Mark chapter 1. He says to them, listen to this lesson. It's going to change your life. No. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And then it doesn't record what he calls out to the other brothers down in verse 20, but we see their response is to put their nets down and follow him. So I think we can infer that it was probably something like, follow me. Jesus doesn't come primarily with a lesson or a program in which to enroll or a new religious regimen to follow. He just comes to us with himself and says, follow me. Jesus is the school for us as Christians. The currency of Christianity is is things like loyalty to Jesus, allegiance to Jesus, time with Jesus. An emulation of what we see in Jesus. Direct response to Jesus. It's not attendance. It's not appearance. It's all about following after Jesus. But again, he's not here in person like he was there. You know, for them it meant, well, he wants me to follow him and God has stirred in my heart that I should do it. I can't stay in this boat and still follow him as he's walking down the coastline. So I have to drop my net and, and I don't know if they rode into the shore, if they jumped out Forrest Gump style and swam to the shore and then followed. But in order for them to follow, it was a, it was a physical leaving of a physical place in a moving along a physical space with Jesus to live with him and see how he did things and hear what he taught. Literally, they followed him. Physically, they followed him. Now, he's not here in physical form. So when he calls you to follow him, it doesn't mean necessarily quit your job, walk off the job site, clock out and leave forever. It doesn't necessarily mean that. 
In fact, there's a passage that just occurred to me. I wish I had looked it up because I can't remember where it is. Where Paul says he encourages the people in his churches to just remain as they are after they receive Christ. Even if you're a slave. Remembering that slavery was different here than American slavery. So not, I'm not advocating slavery here. But he says even if you're in a bad work situation, you don't have to, to leave your physical space anymore to follow Jesus. It's not like that. He may call you to do that. Sometimes he does. But it means something different for us now. And again, since this is just a historical paragraph, we need to leap out of there and get a little more information about what it means to follow him now. So let me read to you from Luke 6, verse 46. This is a great, straightforward, if, if I have muddied the waters with the way I'm presenting things, let Jesus, who is the, the world's greatest teacher, come in with a very straightforward word for you now. In Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Here we have a hint at what it means to follow him. You're following him and calling him Lord are, are very similar things. If we're going to say that we follow him, if we're going to call him Lord, we ought to do what he says. Pretty simple, Right? Yet, isn't it shocking how many of us will go to church and we'll do that and we'll perhaps have quiet times maybe every day and we'll listen to 91.9 at least a lot of the time. But in terms of actually listening to the things that he said and actually responding in obedience, that's a whole other matter. And Jesus says, why are you even calling yourself a Christian if you're not going to do what I say? I mean, let's at least be intellectually honest and not call ourselves Christians if we're not going to actually do what he says because he says some hard things. You might be, your mind might be kind of racing now. Well, what, what has he said? Well, how can you know what he has said? You've got to listen to him in the word. So maybe for you, you're feeling some stirrings of the Holy spirit and you're realizing I'm really not following Jesus. I'm doing some other Christian like things, but I'm really not following him. It might begin here. Get into these, get into Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And just get to know him a little bit and see the path that he walks and what he has said. And then do what he says. Doing what he says is, is the primary way of following him. I'll read you one more passage from 1 Peter. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. Verse 21, rather. For to this you have been called. There it is again. You have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. So here he's writing to people after Jesus is no longer bodily on earth. And he's talking to them about their suffering. And he's saying, you know, you've actually been called to suffer. Because you've been called to follow in Jesus' footsteps. So it's like in this life, as we read the Gospels and we see how Jesus lived, it's a path for us to follow along. And we see, well, Jesus was submissive even to unrighteous authorities. So therefore, we're following him. We've got to follow him right in it, into those footsteps. We see that Jesus humbled himself all the way down from a place of equality with God to a place of humanity, even further down to die for humans that hated him. 
Well, if we're following in those footsteps, it's going to be a steep decline down from anything that looks like pride into increasing humility. But we're following Jesus' steps. So we have to walk this way. And it, I don't know any other way to put it other than that. It just means actually doing it. In, in concrete, real steps, following his ways, following what he taught. There's nothing uh, vague and spiritual about it. It's real life decisions about what you'll do with your time, your money, your words, your relationships, your family. Okay, if, if it's not, if your Christianity is not down at the level of actual steps through your day, you're not following Jesus. There's nothing in here about osmosis. Jesus didn't say, hey, here's, here's something for you to sort of soak up and it'll change you eventually, I'm sure. Just keep doing what you're doing. He said, come and take the steps required to follow me. See, this is comforting too and kind of relaxing for the Facebook generation and the Twitter generation. Um, any of you on Facebook or, and or Twitter? Okay, quite a few of you. All right, we're not so behind the times. You skipped the uh, DVD movie generation and into the Facebook, Twitter generation. But Facebook and Twitter are all about getting a following. How many followers you have. How many people like and follow your posts. See, our, our whole world is trying to set us up to try to be little gods. To be the extraordinary ones. To be the ones with all the followers. To be the ones that, that get the applause. To be the ones that uh, get the admiration and the emulation. To, to be the ones that people notice. But the call of Christianity is just... Set all that aside and realize that humans are meant to notice and applaud and emulate and follow, but not each other. We're meant to do that to Jesus Christ. Jesus calls ordinary people to follow him. So I just want to close with some questions for you. Consider these things. Has Jesus called you to follow him? Because it's possible that you've been involved with church stuff your whole life, but never actually heard him call you specifically to step out of your old way of life and begin following him. Is Jesus perhaps right now calling you to do that? If so, I encourage you to just do it in prayer. Just commit, okay, I don't understand what it will look like, but I will follow you. And maybe come talk to me after the service and we can pray together about it and I can try to pastor you in that direction. That's the whole reason I'm here. How have you or are you responding to Jesus' call? You immediately drop everything that hinders you from following and, and go? Or are you like the man who keeps, who's trying to plow but looking back the whole time when Jesus says, isn't fit? What might you need to leave behind to follow him? What is your next step? In following him. There is always a next step when you're following someone who's on the move. What is your next step? And if you don't have a clue what it is, maybe getting here so you can see what he's doing and what he's saying might be your next step. Are you following Jesus? Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful that 
you, through Jesus, call ordinary people. And I'm a little... I'm nervous because I just don't think that we fully understand what following Jesus may end up looking like for us because Jesus walked a path that involved a lot of austerity and a lot of suffering. But it was a path that led to you, so it was a path that leads to life and joy and peace and purpose and fulfillment. So I just ask that you would be gentle with us and merciful to us and show us each where we stand in this regard. If you have been calling to us and we've just been ignoring, please don't give up. Please, through Jesus, call us again to follow him and please enable us to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.